Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. A'udhu billahi minash shaitan ar-rajim. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim O Allah, we ask you to send your blessings upon our master Muhammad, the opener of what was closed and the seal of what came before him champion of the truth by the truth and guide to the straight path and upon his family and companions as is befitting his noble rank ameen the question that we gave us you are to believe in allah his angels his books, his messengers, the last day, and the divine decree. And then he asked, well, first he said, you have spoken correctly. And all of the companions and attendants were amazed because they did not know that he was an angel. He came in the form of a man. And they said, who is this man confirming the words of the Prophet So they were amazed at this. And then he said, inform me of Islam. And the Prophet said, it is to worship, oh, excuse me, uh, Islam is to testify that there is nothing worthy of worship except for God, and that the Muhammad is the messenger of God, to perform the prayers, to pay the purifying alms, to fast in Ramadan, and to make the pilgrimage to the sacred house, if you are able to do so. So we're going to spend the coming weeks, inshallah, covering this statement right here. And we, uh, we have gone over the shahada, which the open testimony of the shahada is the first of these acts of worship. And really, it's the foundation that the others are built upon. Um, but what we have here is what is more commonly known as the five pillars of Islam. And these are the outward actions of worship that we use to draw nearer to God. And each of these things that the angel Gabriel asks about, you get to the end of the hadith and he leaves. And the Prophet ﷺ turns to his companions and he says, do you know who that was? And they replied to him, Allah and his messenger know best, right? Which is a way of like being deferential. They, they were saying, we don't want to speak. You speak, you tell us who that was. And he said, that was the angel Gabriel who came to teach you your religion. So these three questions that the angel Gabriel asks about, what is Iman or belief? What is Islam, the outward actions of worship? And what is Ihsan? We understand these to be the three dimensions of the religion. And they're not exactly different things. They're, like I said, dimensions. They sort of, when you put them together, will give you a full three-dimensional view of what the religion is. And so really what we're going to be talking about when it comes to the five pillars is like all of those things that we talked about in the chapter on belief. The things here are going to tell us what to do with that belief. 
They're going to tell us like how we take that belief that we actually have and express it in a healthy way. And what a wonderful thing this actually is for us to have. That not only do we have the content of belief, but we have the outward expression. Like what, what do you do once you have come to this belief that God is one, that there are angels, that there are messengers, that there are books? What do you do with this belief? Um, you engage in worship. This is how you express your belief outwardly. And this is a really wonderful thing um, because what we are going to be learning about here in this chapter is really, um, it's a new language. It's a new language. In the chapter on belief, we were talking about uh, inward realities. And so the language we were speaking was very much the language of the intellect and the language of the heart. Now that we are moving on to outward actions, right? And that's what worship is. It's an outward action that expresses an inward reality. We're going to be speaking in the language of the law and specifically the Sharia, the, what is very commonly translated as Islamic law. Or sometimes you'll see the phrase Sharia law, right? So we're going to be talking about what that is. And in this class tonight, what the terminology of that language actually is. But this is a wonderful thing to have. Um, and, you know, I remember having a conversation with one of my Catholic friends. And we were, you know, it was almost like an interfaith dialogue. We would share a lot about our beliefs with each other. And I was telling him about the rights of the neighbor in Islam, which are immense. The Prophet said that Gabriel kept coming to me and informing me of the rights of the neighbor until the point that I thought they were going to inherit from me. Meaning like Gabriel saying, you, you owe your neighbor this and you owe your neighbor that. You ought to do these things for them. They are close to you. They are akin to family members. And the Prophet said, he kept bringing new things to me, like new rights that my neighbors had over me until I thought he was going to tell me I have to write them into my will. And so we were talking about this. And I said, you know, one of the things we believe about our neighbors is that if we go to sleep and someone in our neighborhood, one of our neighbors is going to bed hungry, that that is a collective sin on everyone in the neighborhood. And if one person goes and solves that problem, then that is a collective duty that has been fulfilled. And he said, that's really interesting, but how do you know who your neighbor is, right? We have this concept too, love thy neighbor as thyself, right? We believe in much the same thing, but how, how do you actually know who your neighbor is? And I said, oh, well, it's actually very clear for us. It's 40 houses in every direction. Like, according to the Sharia, your neighbor is every person who lives 40 houses to your right, to your left, to your front, to your back. Those are your neighbors. And so those are the people like in your zone of collective responsibility. And he said, wow, you know, if we had an answer like that in Catholicism, there would be a whole lot of legal debate that we could avoid because this is a huge question for us. And it, it made me realize, you know, we actually are given 
a legal language that allows us to express in a very concrete way this belief that we have. And so it's an immense blessing. Uh, the Sharia, God's divine law, is an immense blessing. But we kind of need to break this term down before we move forward, because this is a term that has a lot of connotations in the English language. And I'm sure maybe like everyone in here has heard this term in various places. Uh, I'm always kind of curious to hear from the people who are actually in the room. Like when you hear the word Sharia, like, what do you think of? Extremists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyone else? Wanna, anything else that you've heard? Mashallah. Yeah, the most just law. But, but she has actually read about this um, rather than receiving information from the media. Right. Yeah, you know, we kind of have to get past the connotations that this word has to the actual denotations, meaning like the dictionary definition of the term rather than like all the other terms that people tend to associate with the term. So to do that, we kind of have to talk about this word law because it doesn't quite translate. For us as Americans, law is the domain of the state, right? We have people working for the government, like the federal government, the state government, local governments who legislate. And that's their job as government employees. They are legislators, right? So law is a government activity. And it's something that is codified, like it's written down. You know, like the, this is written into law and like we have all of the provisions, we have all of the exceptions, you know, we have all of like the, the legal jargon that goes along with it, it's written down. Very often we think of law, and this is more of a connotation in Western law, but we think of it as being penal. We think about like breaking the law, meaning like for a particular crime, there is a particular punishment. And oftentimes the difficult thing about understanding what the Sharia is, is that it's nothing like this. It's actually completely different. The Sharia is not the domain of the state, first and foremost. It has certain rulings that are applicable to the state, like the Ahkam al-Sultaniyya, like the, the rulings of uh, the governing power. That exists, but it's a tiny fraction of what the Sharia actually is. Most of the Sharia is implemented by individual Muslims because most of the Sharia applies to things like acts of worship, which we'll be learning about in this class, your daily activities. Like one of the things that we, we really ought to do is like if we are in a particular field, let's say if we're entrepreneurs, we ought to know the rulings of buying and selling because we have rulings around things like this. But these are things that, largely speaking, individual Muslims understand and implement themselves. The overlap, like if you had a Venn diagram of like the areas of the Sharia that overlap with the state, they're very minimal. Um, 
Likewise, uh, if you had to go to a judge, even traditionally, like historically, throughout most of Islamic history in majority Muslim lands, if you had to go to a judge, this judge would not be employed by the state. There were judges who were employed by the state, but most judges were independent legal theorists. And so you would get something called a fatwa. And this fatwa is a legal opinion. More often than not, it is non-binding. It's not enforceable by the state. It's just you're seeking religious guidance and you take it and you enforce it upon yourself or in your own life. And then more often than not, it is also not penal, meaning there is not a punishment that the Sharia speaks of. There are, there's a section of the Sharia called the Hadood punishments that, that exists, and that talks about actual penal uh, uh, consequences for crimes that are committed, you know, big things like murder, highway robbery, things like that. Um, but when we're talking about the Sharia, we have to understand that we need to adjust our understanding of what our conception of the law is, because this is a divine law. This is one that largely exists between the worshiper and the one who's being worshipped. Literally, the word Sharia, if we were going to translate it literally from the Arabic, it refers to a path that leads to water. Like, and more literally, a well-trodden path that leads to water. Meaning, that leads to water. Yeah. And you think about the context where this religion was revealed. You have a path to water. You have a path to life. You have the means to survive and to thrive. And if you don't have that, you're in a very dangerous situation. So a, a sharia for the Arabs to whom this revelation was given, that is something that you seek out. That is something that you look for. That is something that if it exists nearby you, you want to know where it is so that you can follow it. Right? And it is a well-trodden path, meaning this is something that others who came before us, they have walked down this path too they have found water. And so you know that it's been tested, it's been tried, and people have been successful walking this path. That is literally what the Sharia means. So this is very important because we kind of have to shift uh, what one of my teachers, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, calls cognitive frames, right? If we come in with the cognitive frames that we receive from American law, we'll miss part of the picture. So it's very important to make this shift to understand what it is exactly that we're talking about here. And likewise, um, the Sharia doesn't apply to everyone. And I think generally speaking, uh, there are some special rulings like for children, for example, uh, in US law, but you know, we have this concept of equality under the law, right? Everyone is accountable in the same exact way. We have conditions for people who are subject to the Sharia and to its rulings. And so first, that is a person with sanity. You have to be of sound mind to be held uh, accountable. 
Now, so what does that mean in practice? Like someone who, let's say, loses consciousness, you know, they get into a car accident and they miss their mugger prayer, right? These, these things happen. Um, and then they come to consciousness later and they have a question. Oh, no, I missed my mugger prayer. Is, is Allah going to hold me accountable for this? Well, the answer to that is no, because you were not in a state of mental well-being. You were not mentally, cognitively sound. You know, and likewise for people whose state is like that permanently, right? Like they don't have to pay zakat. They don't have to fast Ramadan, right? They, they don't understand what's being asked of them. So how could they be accountable for that? So the first is sanity. The, the next is puberty, meaning we have to be physically mature. We have to have reached physical adulthood. So like for, mashallah, Adam over here, Adam does not have to pay zakah. Congratulations, Adam. <laughs> you don't have to go out and, and work for that money. Adam does not have to fast Ramadan. He doesn't have to pray the Maghrib prayer because he is not in what is called an Arabic mukallaf, which literally means like he is, uh, he is burdened or the, the weight of the Sharia has not been put upon him, right? That will come, inshallah. That will come uh, when he reaches the age of puberty. That is when we become fully adult and therefore fully accountable under the law. And then the last one, and I think, you know, for the people who understand Sharia with a lot of these negative connotations, this last one comes as a surprise. The last condition of accountability is Islam. If you're not a Muslim, you are not accountable to the Sharia. And this is surprising. Why? Because people have this idea oh, like Muslims are coming to impose Sharia law upon us. And it's like, no, that's not really the reality of what Sharia is. Muslims are accountable to the Sharia, to God's divine law. But we do not understand people who have not accepted this religion to be accountable in the way that we are. Now, we do have rulings that guide our interactions with non-Muslims. That is true. But we don't expect Christians to pay zakah. We don't expect Jews to fast Ramadan. We don't expect, uh, you know, an atheist to pray salah. That's not an expectation that God actually lays out for anyone except those who have accepted the religion. So these are the three conditions of who is accountable. And so if you fall into these three categories, then the sharia applies to you. If you do not, it does not. Everyone following me so far? Okay. So let's get into the legal rulings. Now, this is going to be important as we go through the chapter because it, it's going to help us understand things about prayer and things about um, uh, like going on the Hajj, going on the pilgrimage to Mecca. You will hear terminology like prayers that are obligatory for us to make, and then prayers that are recommended for us to make. You will hear terminology like times when it is disliked 
to pray. Those times exist as well. Um, places where it is actually forbidden to pray. So this is a language that is going to guide our understanding of the acts of worship as we go forward in the coming weeks, inshallah. And I want to take a quote from the Being Muslim book uh, because I really think that he sums it up very nicely. Dr. Asad Tarsin, he says, Islamic law, Sharia, is concerned not with the objects, not with objects and materials, but with actions. For example, it does not forbid alcohol itself. It forbids consuming or selling or serving alcohol. Every conceivable action one could take is assigned a particular legal ruling in Islamic law. So everything that we do has a status within the Sharia. But beyond the actions that we take, the things that we do with our hands, with our tongues, with our eyes, with our feet, right, with our outward limbs, beyond that, the Sharia does not apply. Now, why is this important to understand? Um, first of all, we need to understand that, as Dr. Asad Tarsin said, nothing is haram. And I would very much like to add to that, no person is haram. This is a very important distinction to understand. Um, and no place is haram. And you can think about it like this. Haram literally means forbidden. If a person, place, or thing was haram, like if Allah forbade its existence, it would not exist. And we actually talked about this last week in the um, class on Qadr, on the divine decree. We are reading from Imam Atahawi. And he said, you know, if everyone on the face of the earth came together and conspired to remove something from Allah's creation that he had decreed to be in his creation, they would not be able to do so. So when we're talking about the halal, the permissible, and the haram, and especially the haram, we need to understand that we are talking about actions. We're not talking about objects. We're not talking about people. Now, this is a really important distinction because, okay, um, I've gotten controversial. I will have gotten controversial now twice today because I mentioned Pride Month in my khutbah, and I'm going to mention Pride Month uh, again in this class. But this is important for us to understand because this is something that is in our culture nowadays. And we really need to understand how our religion treats a subject like homosexuality, right? What does Islam actually have to say about homosexuality? Now, stay with me. Stay with me. Islam has nothing to say about homosexuality. It has things to say about homosexual acts. Are you guys following the distinction? If, if by homosexuality we are talking about an inward feeling that a person has or a sexual desire that a person has. The Sharia has nothing to say about this. There is no judgment positive or negative or anywhere in between that the Sharia places on homosexuality if by that term we are talking about sexual desires, inclinations, 
things like that. It does have things to say about homosexual actions. Are you guys with me? Okay, alhamdulillah. This is like the most important thing to understand about the Sharia. Was there, yes, ma'am. Thought is not haram. The action is haram. Yeah, the action is haram, but the thought is not. And this is, a, a thought is not an action. No, and, and a feeling is not an action. Um, a, you know, desire, an urge, an inclination, an appetite, none of these things are considered actions. Yeah, this is a mercy from God. Because, you know, like we all have our inclinations and our desires for various things that are haram. Um, and God does not take us to task for those things. You can desire it, you can struggle with it all you want. God is never going to place any judgment on that whatsoever. But you go, you reach for the thing. You start engaging in the action. That's where the judgment comes in. That's where the Sharia actually has something to say. Um, now, this is also important to know, um, not on like a day-to-day -day basis, but you do have those crazy types out there who don't like Muslims and who do very strange things like vandalizing mosques by throwing pig blood on the door. Have you guys seen this? This is a thing that happens sometimes. Um, you also have, like, I've seen YouTube videos of guys dipping uh, ammunition in pig fat. The idea being, like, you know, when the, when the race war comes, we're going to, like, shoot Muslims and they're going to go to hell because these bullets are laced with pig fat. And it's like, no, that's not how it works, actually. <laughs> because the thing itself, they're, they're like, oh, Muslims can't eat pork. It's forbidden for them. So therefore, if like we touch them with a little piece of pork, God's going to punish them or they're going to go to hell. This is the logic that they're working with. And it's the same logic here that you know, applies to everything else. No, it does not, in fact, work like that. We're just going to wash the blood off the door and we're going to get on with our business, right? And you know, God forbid uh, we ever get into a situation where we're being shot with pig fat bullets. But if someone comes and shoots me with a pig fat bullet, um, I'm not, my dying thoughts aren't going to be, man, they got me. <laughs> they got me. It's over. Game over. Checkmate. Um, but it comes back to the same idea. The thing itself, not Haram, right? Uh, in fact, in, in the Maliki school, right, even uh, like a, a pig, you know, like some people, they're still very wary, like they wouldn't want to touch a pig or God forbid, like uh, they got pig saliva on them. That would actually be considered najas or filth and you would need to wash it off your clothes before you pray. In the Maliki school, we take this principle so seriously that like any, uh, anything from a living animal is not considered najas, even animals that otherwise uh, are unclean if we were to eat them. So, um, Anyway, I'm sort of like belaboring the point here, but uh, I just want to make the distinction between things, people, places on the one hand and actions on the other. When we were talking about the rulings of the Sharia, which we're going to talk about right now, 
The only thing under consideration is actions. Okay, and when it comes to the rulings of the Sharia, we have more than halal and haram. And this is very important to understand because when you're talking to Muslims, it's very easy to get the perception that what our religion has to say is that something is either halal or it is haram, right? And this is useful to some extent, right? Like, uh, you know, you go to a restaurant and you go with your friend and you're like, oh, is the meat here halal? Meaning like, is it permissible for me to eat, right? You know, these terms have their use. But when we're actually talking about the way that God is designating all of our actions, we have five rulings, not two, halal and haram. We have five. And so this tells us something very important before we even get into what the rulings are. It tells us something very important about the way that God is holding us to account. God is not pushing us into a black and white worldview where something is either permitted or forbidden, good or bad, worthy or unworthy, right? That would be a black and white way to have to deal with the world. What we get instead is actually a spectrum. We get a spectrum that allows for gray area. And the really interesting thing about the Sharia is that most things are in the gray. There is relatively little that is black and white. And so with that gray area, we understand that God is giving us flexibility. He is having mercy on us. And he's giving us room to move and really adapt to his rulings in a way that you know, allows for our own individuality. Like we all have our own quirks. We have our own strengths. We have our own weaknesses. Adopting something like the sacred law into your life is something that will be an ongoing practice, inshallah, throughout the rest of your life. So the gray area is what allows you to take this on and actually be successful. So you have room to breathe while, inshallah, you're, you're living more and more in accordance with the way that God wants you to live. So let's get in, inshallah, to uh, what the rulings of the Sharia are. So the first judgment of the Sharia, and this is the one that we will see applied to all of our acts of worship, uh, is in Arabic we say fard, uh, which means required. So our five daily prayers are required. And what does it mean to be required? And bear with me here because, again, there's always nuance. There's, there's always room for us to come into this in our own way. But a required action is one where there is reward for completion, and then there is sin incurred for missing it. So we are rewarded when we pray, and we incur a sin when we do not pray. Now, that kind of starts to sound like, whoa, a little bit heavy. Five daily prayers, and you're, you're saying, you're, what you're telling me, like I'm sitting here, 
I'm not a Muslim, and you're telling me, but I'm interested in Islam. You're telling me, as soon as I say my shahada, I'm accountable for all these prayers. Like, this is a huge change in my life. What's, what's going on here? And it's like, okay, please understand that when we are talking about things that are required of us, right, it, especially when we come into this religion, we have what is called uh, in Arabic a rukhsa, which means like a, a license. Uh, we have a little bit of breathing room, meaning, look, you haven't even learned Arabic yet. How are you going to say the Fatiha? And therefore, how are you going to pray? The Prophet ﷺ said that the most beloved actions to Allah are the ones that we do consistently. And this absolutely applies whether or not we have just embraced the religion, whether we are recommitting to it, or whether we've been practicing for 20 years. The most beloved actions are the ones that you can do consistently. And when we are talking about the fard actions, which are a big deal, if you are completing your fard actions, you are doing something immense. If you're fasting Ramadan and paying your zakah and praying five times a day, and you're blessed to go on the Hajj to Mecca one day, that is an immense thing. In naming this as fard or required, what we are doing is we are setting our North Star. We are saying this is what we are going to use as our solid point of reference. And this is what is going to guide us as we are walking down this road. So that we know what the standard is, so that we always know what it is that we are working towards. But yes, there will be human frailty and failings and accidents and all this stuff that happens along the way. And we ought not to get down on ourselves. I often say this, but the divine law, the Sharia, is meant to provide stepping stones to Allah, not stumbling blocks. And so anytime we, we encounter something and it feels like it's tripping us up, what we have to realize is, well, we're just not ready for that yet. The time will come, God willing, where we are completing our five daily prayers. But if that is a stumbling block rather than a stepping stone for where you're at right now, that means, you know, take a step back. Just take a step back. Work on what you can do um, consistently right now. And once you can do that consistently, add more to it. And you will get there, God willing. So that's the fard. And that applies for each of the acts of worship that we're going to discuss in the coming weeks. The next is mustahab. Mustahab, which means... Literally beloved, it gets translated as like commendable. Literally, it means beloved. It comes from the same root word as hub, which is one of the words for love in Arabic. So it's an action that is beloved to God. God loves it when we do things that are mustahab. And the ruling on mustahab actions is that there is reward in doing them. But if you don't do them, if you don't engage in them, there's no sin in it. So a good example would be the sunnah prayers, or what is called the nafil prayers. So we pray our fard, uh, maghrib prayer, three rakats. 
And then we pray afterwards, if we want to, two rakats of the nafil prayer or the, a prayer that in the sharia would be judged to be mustahab. God loves it when we do that. He loves it. It allows us to draw nearer to him. But if we don't do it, he doesn't take us to account for that. Now, I mentioned that the fard is a big deal. Engaging in things that are mustahab is an even bigger deal. And you could say that this is our path. Doing what is fard and then adding what is mustahab, that is our spiritual path. And God talks about this. There is a hadith qudsi, which is um, God's speech, but it's not part of the Quran. So God says, whosoever shows enmity to someone devoted to me, one of my awliya, literally like one of the saints, I shall be at war with him. My servant draws not near to me with anything more beloved to me than the religious duties I have enjoined upon him. And in Arabic, it says, iftaradtu alayh, meaning literally like the actions that I have made fard for him. I have made obligatory for him. And my servant continues to draw near to me with superogatory works. These are the mustahab. So that I shall love him. And when I love him, I am his hearing with which he hears, his seeing with which he sees, his hand with which he strikes, and his foot with which he walks. Were he to ask something of me, I would surely give it to him. And were he to ask me for refuge, I would surely grant it to him. I do not hesitate about anything as much as I hesitate about seizing the soul of my faithful servant. He hates death, and I hate hurting him. So what God is telling us here is that the fard and then the mustahab, this is the path to God's love. If you want God to love you, strive for this. These are the actions that are beloved to God. And if you engage in them, you will become beloved to him as well. So that's the fard and the mustahab. That's one end of the spectrum. In the middle, we have what is called mubah. Mubah, which just means permissible. You can do it. Uh, what is permissible? Most everything. Most everything is permissible. And I mean that in the sense that like of all the actions, because the Sharia judges all of our actions. It judges walking down the street chewing bubblegum. There's a ruling for that in the Sharia. The ruling is mubah. <laughs> it's permissible. You can walk down the street chewing bubblegum, right? But even something as mundane, as little, as insignificant as that, our divine law has something to say about it. Now, what's interesting about the permissible is that unless there is a ruling given otherwise by the Sharia, our understanding is that the default ruling for everything is that it's mubah, it's permissible. By default, everything is permissible. Unless God comes along and he forbids it. Or he comes along and he says, this is obligatory for you. Not only can you do it, you must do it. 
Yes, sometimes Allah would speak to the Prophet and he would say, basically, tell the people that I am saying X, Y, and Z. And it was understood like this isn't part of the revelation of the Quran. It's not part of the text of the Quran. But I have something to say that I want the people to hear. And Allah is delivering this hadith. It's a hadith not of the Prophet, but it's a hadith of Allah. And the Prophet is relaying that to the people. It's called a hadith Qudsi. Qudsi literally means holy. And the, the hadith Qudsis are beautiful. Usually, Allah is talking about himself and his relationship to us uh, in really, really striking, beautiful terms. Like, like this. You know, like when I love him, um, I become the eyes with which he sees and the feet with which he walks. Beautiful. It's lovely. But that's what most Hadith Qudsis are like. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. Um, now, for the permissible actions, um, there is no reward for them and there is no punishment. You can do them. But there, there's no merit in walking down the street and chewing bubble gum. Unless, and this is the other interesting thing about the permissible actions, unless you transform them with an intention to engage in worship. So let's say you're walking down the street chewing bubble gum on your way to pray the Magha prayer at the masjid, right? And you left your house with the intention, I am going to walk to the masjid to pray Maghrib. That mundane permissible action of just walking down the street, right? That becomes an act of worship. And there is reward for that. So take note as we're going, like we've, we've done the fard, we've done the mustahab, now we've done the permissible. Compare, compare how much reward is given compared to how much sin can be incurred. What you're going to see, I'll give, I'll give it away right here before we get to the end. What you're going to see is that God tips the scales in our favor. He's conspiring for us. He wants us to succeed. And while everything that we do is judged, it is far easier to engage in an action that God rewards us for than it is in an action that God will hold us accountable for sin. So let's move on from the mubah to the next one, the makru. Makru. Uh, it gets translated as disliked. I think the Arabic is a little stronger here. Uh, literally, um, it, it means like detestable, uh, hateful. So these are actions that if we refrain from them, so these are things that God doesn't like. He hasn't forbidden them. But it's like, you know, I'd really, you know, how like with your kids, like I'd really rather you not, <laughs> you know, like could you not right now, right? Could you just like chill, please? That's the makru. And what God is doing with the makru is if we do not engage in these actions, there is reward. But if we do engage in them, there's no sin. There's no sin. So what's an example of that? Um, the Asr prayer. 
the afternoon prayer that we pray. It is makru to pray the Asr prayer just before Maghrib. Like if you're praying the afternoon prayer right before the sun goes down, that is disliked. And if you can make it your habit to pray the Asr prayer earlier in the day, when the sun is still, you know, like very much in the sky, it's not setting, then you will incur reward from God for doing that. Especially if that's like a difficult thing to do because of your schedule. But if you like make a point of doing that, Allah will reward you for that. But if you engage in that, like if you do it, and sometimes I do it, you know, like I just, time gets away from me. And I pray the, the Asr prayer. There's no sin in that. Unless, okay, and this is why there's nuance in everything. Unless we engage in this consistently. Now, if I am just being, not, not if this is beyond my control. Like if I'm working a shift and the only time I can pray Asr is right before Mughrib, then there's nothing I can do about that. But if I'm just being lazy, it, you know, it's like a Saturday and I'm watching the Obi-Wan series because I am right now. I love it. It's great. And I'm just binge watching Obi-Wan and I'm like looking at the watch. It's like, man, there's Osir. But man, he just met Darth Vader again for the first time. And like, I, I got to finish this episode. And then I just keep going like through the episodes. And oh, it's almost time for Maghrib. If I do that on a consistent basis, just because I'm lazy, I'm being heedless that will lead me into sin. Makru actions that are engaged in heedlessly and continuously will incur sin. Really, like this is, a, it's like uh, not taking your health seriously. It's like, sure, you can have a Twinkie every now and then, right? It's not good for you, but are you really going to hurt yourself that much if like you have a Twinkie like every two months? No, probably not. But you just start having Twinkies on a regular basis. You're going to feel that. That's going to affect your energy levels. That's going to affect your weight. That's going to affect the way that you feel on a regular basis. So you're cultivating a sickness. This is the idea that we're getting at here. Now, the Prophet Wasallam had something to say about this. He said, the halal is clear. Meaning what God has permitted is very, very clear. And the haram is clear. What God has forbidden is very, very clear. And between them are matters unclear that are unknown to most people. And whoever is wary of these unclear matters has absolved his religion and his honor. And whoever indulges in them has indulged in the haram. It is like a shepherd who herds his sheep too close to a preserved sanctuary, and they will eventually graze in it. Every king has a sanctuary, and the sanctuary of Allah is what he has made haram. There lies within the heart a piece of flesh, or there lies within the body a piece of flesh, rather. If it is sound, then the whole body is sound. And if it is corrupted, the whole body is corrupted. And verily, this piece of flesh is the heart. So, you know, he's saying, like, I'm giving away the next ruling, which is the haram, 
but I think you all probably already guessed that. Um, the Makru is like the border zone right up next to the Haram. It's like if you are a shepherd and you graze your sheep in that border zone, eventually one of those sheep is going to run over the border into the sanctuary, into that land that is not yours, into that land that you have been told, stay off of it. It's going to happen. That's why I keep my son five feet away from the stove. As soon as I see him getting close, I'm like, no, back up. Why? Because the stove's hot. But I'm all the way over here. I know, but if you get too close, you're a kid. You're careless. I know what's going to happen. Five feet away from the stove, please. Same concept here. Okay. And the next one, obviously, is the haram. Actions that are forbidden. Literally, this means proscribed. Proscribed. And this is the why, why the word haram sounds a lot like the word haram, which is a sanctuary, right? Like I'm going to the haram. People tell you they're going to the haram. It doesn't mean they're going to the nightclub. It means they're going to Mecca and Medina, right? Or maybe to Jerusalem. But that's why those two words sound uh, the same. Because the haram is a proscribed area. It's an area that actually has an outward boundary. And so when you pass through that boundary, Certain things become haram, like violence, for example. You can't fight in the haram, in Mecca. If you go into the haram, uh, especially with the intention of pilgrimage, you have to dress a certain way. There are certain actions that are not allowed. So it literally means prescribed, which means like to draw a boundary around something. That's what haram is. So for the haram actions, there is a sin for doing them. And what do you think for not doing them? Anyone want to take a guess? There's a reward. So think about that. God is saying, like, this is forbidden. Don't do it. To do this is sinful. And you could imagine that that might be enough, right? Like, there is punishment for doing these things. But no, he's going a step further. And this is why I say, take notes on, like, what the balance of, like, sin versus reward is here. There is far more reward. If you do not engage in the haram, you get reward for doing that. That's crazy. That's like, you know, uh, those speed cameras, like they catch you speeding and they send you a ticket in the mail. What if every time you drove past a speed camera and you weren't speeding, they sent you $75 in the mail? That's what we're doing here. That's what's happening. Every time you are obedient, especially when it's difficult for you, like for those things that are tempting, there is immense reward. And that. And, you know, um, have a good opinion of Allah, right? Like, we live in a time where the haram is readily available to us. And it's Friday night. I could go get up to it after this class if I wanted to. We all could. But we don't, inshallah. 
And imagine what Allah is giving us just for being in a class, learning about the deen on a Friday night, and not going to the club afterwards or wherever, the bar, whatever you know your fancy may be. Right? God is rewarding us just for refraining. That's the nature of his mercy. Allahu Akbar. Now, I have some advice here. This is not the Sharia. This is not a legal ruling. This is Will's advice. So take it or leave it. But like, if you're new to the religion and it's like, wow, you know, there's a lot here. There's a lot to learn about. There's a lot to do. Where do I start? Start by just doing your best to leave what is haram. Like if you want to talk about spiritual progress, leaving what is haram is far more powerful than doing what is right, doing what you ought to do. The Messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, said, what I have forbidden you, avoid. Like, just don't do it. What I have ordered you to do, what do you think he said? Do it? Yeah, that would be my guess, is do it. He said, do as much of it as you can. Right? So there, there's an emphasis being placed here on what is forbidden. Like, he's just being straight up. Like, don't do it. Like, just stay away from it. But when it, so it's like, you know, just do nothing when it comes to that stuff. But when it comes to the stuff that you're actually supposed to do, like the fard actions, again, going back to this idea of like what our standards are, like do as much as you can. This is not, this is not me. This is the prophet. It's the messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Do as much of it as you can. And so that requires you to actually assess for yourself, what can I actually do in this moment? What is going to be consistent for me? Right? Um, and only we can answer that question for ourselves. But be honest with yourselves. You know, we can, we can delude ourselves too. Well, you know, it's kind of hard for me to do Maghrib because, you know, like watching Obi-Wan, you know. No, be honest with yourself. Like, if you can do it, do it. And then be consistent with it. And then you will grow. But in my experience, and from what I've seen of myself and other people, um, you leave what is haram, that, that's, that's far more powerful. Like, if you have to prioritize something. If you have to prioritize something, leaving what is haram is far more powerful than doing what is far. And, and I, I'm going to make the case here that that's what the Prophet is arguing here too. Um, now, we've been talking about sin in a very sort of legalistic way. So I want to close with this, that when we're speaking the language of the Sharia, understand that we're speaking a legal language, but Islam is not a completely legal religion. In fact, it is far more than that. It has a legal tradition, right? That's a component of Islam. But these rulings are here to help us navigate this life. And in the process of navigating life, we all sin. We all sin. So don't get depressed when it's like, oh man, the legal ruling was, I, I incur sin and I'm going to be punished for this. No, just because you incurred some sin does not mean you're going to be punished. Why? 
Because Allah is al ghafur al-Rahim. He is the forgiving and the merciful, right? We can always turn to God and ask for forgiveness. And he'll forgive us, right? That's it. Um, and there's a verse from the Quran that I want to read to you about this. And this is a verse from uh, a story about Musa, السلام, the prophet Moses, where he strikes and kills a man, an Egyptian. And he prays to God after doing that. He says, قَالَ رَبِّي إِنِّي ظَلَمْتُ النَّفْسِ says, say, O oh my Lord, I have wronged myself. I have oppressed myself. So forgive me. And the Arabic here is so interesting. As soon as Musa says, so forgive me, it says, so he forgave him. It wasn't so he, you know, came and interrogated Musa and, you know, came and uh, uh, reprimanded him. It's like, no, there was the call for help and there was the response. There was nothing in between them. It was immediate. The request for forgiveness and the forgiveness itself, just like that, right? And that's our religion. That's what it has to say about sin. We all do it. It happens. Part of life. In fact, Allah said, if we did not sin, he would wipe us out and replace us with people who did sin and who turned to him in repentance. So it's going to happen. What do we do when it happens? Well, we don't get down on ourselves, And we, we don't even have to start using the language of like, oh, like I, I committed a haram, so I'm getting a sin here. It's like, make a note, put it on the, the scale. No, Allah forgives. So, and that's... That's a bigger part of our religion. It's bigger than the legal part of our religion. Um, so keep that in mind as we move forward too, because we'll be talking about forward actions. We'll be talking about mustahab actions. We'll be talking about makru and haram. So keep these things in mind as we go forward, inshallah. We'll end it there, inshallah. A'udhu billahi min shaitan ar-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. والأصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتوصل بالحق وتوصل بالصبر آمين. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give three dollars a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.